Good evening. Welcome to Doors of Deception Radio. This is Dory, and I'm your host, and I'm returning from a very long hiatus of Doors of Deception Radio. I'm back tonight to bring you a guest that was a guest on Doors of Deception a few times when I did uh, Doors of Deception several years ago. I'm very excited to have William Ramsey join me tonight on Doors of Deception. William is an excellent researcher. William is an author. Uh, William has written three books, and uh, they are... um, Alistair Crowley, 9-11 and the New World Order, Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders, and Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. (laughs) I joke with William a little bit that William likes his titles to be short and to the point. Anyway, his latest project uh, was is a documentary. It's been out for a few months now. Um, it's about a three-hour documentary. I've seen it. It's excellent. Well worth the watch. Uh, his information is on the show page here, WilliamRamseyInvestigates.com. There will be a link to the Smiley Face Killers documentary. If you would like to rent that, that's available. It's also available for purchase. It Once again, it is an excellent documentary. I enjoyed it very much. I took copious amounts of notes. And um, so I am going to get William on the switchboard. So I'm going to play a little bit of music again while we get that underway. And when we get back, we should have William Ramsey. (laughs) All right. So uh, welcome uh, back to the show. And I'm really excited to talk to you tonight about the Smiley Face Killers. I watched your documentary and I took a lot of notes, but for people who have never heard of the Smiley Face Killers, or Killer, perhaps, um, in fact, I've run into a couple of people today that said Smiley Face Killer, what is that? So, if you would, please go ahead and tell us about the Smiley Face Killer Killers, the Smiley Face Cases, how you heard about it, just go ahead and... Well, I was... Uh, the, the Smiley Face Killings got its name by... Really, it was three investigators. It was Gilbertson, who was a professor in the Midwest, I believe, Minnesota, and two New York detectives, Scannon and uh, Duarte, who noticed that some, in the case that he actually investigated, young man disappeared at night and ended up in water. And they traced these kind of similar cases to young men disappearing throughout the Northeast, the Midwest, largely. And they compiled a book called Case Studies in Forensic Drownings, where they got into the details of some of these cases. The first recorded 
case that fits this type of profile was uh, a young man named McNeil. He was a Fordham University student, but he disappeared uh, after drinking at a bar in Manhattan and then was found down the Hudson River in the New York Harbor, actually in a water treatment facility. And that was really in the mid, I think, 1997. And so these cases, they traced, a lot of the cases were younger men in college towns. So La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, these kind of uh, places. And in the, in the book, they really go into detail to show that many of these men were uh, missing for some period of time. And the, the, these cases got the name the Smiley Face Killings or the Smiley Face Murders because Gilbertson and Gannon found, in some cases, not all, a spray-painted or painted smiley face in the vicinity of where they believe the young person went into the water. Not where they were found necessarily, but somewhere in the site. And some were actually very close to uh, where some people had drowned. So that's kind of where the smiley face, they were killing Scott's name. There were some original investigators that have kind of moved on. Christy Peel was one. Um, she was on Coast to Coast, I think, eight years ago, 2010. They did two hours with Ian Punnett on these crimes. And the way that I kind of uh, got interested, I'd always heard of the Smiley Face Killers. I had seen there's been some videos on, like, CNN with uh, Anderson Cooper where they covered the case. So I was kind of aware of it, but what really piqued my interest in the case was when I was researching my book, Children of the Beast, I kept coming across these smiley faces associated with the cultists, primarily Alan Moore. And I always thought in the back of my mind, oh, what are these smiley face killings? So then I kind of kept an eye out and was doing research and, and got a copy of case studies in forensic drowning and uh, really was, was trying to you know, notice these cases. I came across a great researcher who I credit as the chief researcher of my documentary, uh, Smiley Face Killers, who was abducting, torturing, and murdering college-age men in the U.S. and U.K. His name was Jim Smith. He runs a Twitter site, Drowning Victims, and also follows the cases on Facebook, and he noticed a pattern as well. And the real, the first case that really made me say, oh, my gosh, this really is happening, was a case that happened in Columbus, Ohio, of a young man by the name of Joey Labute in early 2016. And he was in what's called the short north area of Columbus, Ohio, a place with a lot of bar, uh, bars. And he was out drinking and literally was with his friends and walked outside and disappeared. And uh, I noticed when he disappeared, I was keeping track of these cases online. You, a lot of what's great now is with the uh, advent of the Internet, you can see a lot of the newscasts and the news inquiries into these cases. And a lot of those news inquiries or newscasts or inquiries I included in my documentary because I think it shows the timeline of how people are investigating these cases. And Joey Labute, when he disappeared, I said, if this guy gets found in water, I'm going to freak out. Well, 19 days later, his body was found in the Skiota River, as that's how I pronounce it, S-C-I-O-T-O. His body was found in water, and uh, the police there were confused about how he got in. And one, and one of the interesting aspects of the Joey Labute case was that he was kind of fit the profile of these smiley face killings, but also the police there didn't come to a conclusion that he accidentally drowned. They actually publicly stated, which was uh, remarkable in comparison with these other cases, that they don't know how he made it to the water. So Joey Labute was really the, the kind of turning point for me where I really started to research the cases in 2016 and then 
I put out my documentary in late 20, October of 2017, so it's almost been out a year on Vimeo. It's been very successful. I've got some excellent reviews. It's very long. It's three and a half hours, but I go into the Gilbert and Gannon cases, and I also cover a lot of cases that were included by other researchers. There's been other researchers, but one is footsteps at the river's edge. And one of the interesting things is I was researching the cases. I was interviewing a lot of people who were also researching the cases. So I interviewed Jim Smith on my YouTube channel about four or five times. I also interviewed people who looked at the cases from different perspectives because it's really a global phenomenon. It's happening a lot in the U.S. and U.K., but also happening in other countries. Um, one of these people was a guy by the name of Gary J. I'm in his Smiley Face documentary, which should be coming out very shortly. And he follows these types of cases known in Manchester and Northern England as the Manchester Pusher of young men. And there was also a crime, a blogger by the name of, <clears throat> anyway, she was out of Boston. Her blog was Cryptid Antiquarian. And she wrote a lot on a lot of different sh subjects. But then she wrote about the mysterious deaths of young men in riverways, primarily the St. James River in Boston. And uh, her name was Elise Soper, S-O-P-E-R, and you can listen to my interview with her. And she had this massive spike in interest on her blog. People shared it because they knew something was going on, something curious. I also talked to uh, another woman whose son was one of the victims. His name was Chris Jenkins. His mother's name was Jan Jenkins. And she wrote a book about her son's death. So I just was compiling all this information and trying to really figure out what this phenomenon was. I really didn't know what was happening. I actually thought maybe these specific cases that I covered were <clears throat> cases that could have been accidents. But as I kept researching and seeing these people die and end up in water, and I probably followed at least 10 cases where they disappeared and I disappeared. I said, if these people found in water, I'm going to freak out. And they all got found in water. And wow. these probably followed 25 cases. So these cases, and then you, know, then you have to wonder, you ask these questions, are they really that drunk? Are they really impaired? Where were they last seen? Were they last seen close to water? <clears throat> How are they ending up in water? Why aren't they found in these water searches? In my documentary, I include at least three cases where you can see the water searches often in very small uh, sections of water where they search and the bodies aren't found, and then all of a sudden they are found. One was Garcia, this kid in Boston, who was seen walking upright in a surveillance video. They searched this uh, reservoir where he was uh, around, they don't find him, and then all of a sudden he's found the next uh, or an early morning by a jogger. His body—that's a hyper suspicious case. So that was another of these cases, or one of these cases that really uh, uh, contradicts the notion. And I think it was a public notion that these are accidental drownings. And so I think I show conclusively in my documentary that the cases that I cover now it's very important to parse through the cases to look at these cases uniquely and as a, as a unique group. They're not part of, you know, other people's research, David Politi's, you know, lost and whatever, missing 411. People always bring that up. They're not these cases at all, although he has written a book that um, I'd be embarrassed to publish about these <laughs> cases um, because it's basically, you know, it's very derivative from other, it's not a lot of original research. So there's been, you know, you know, so that these aren't, these are all kind of original cases. And I, you know, I covered about 50 cases in my documentary, 
that show, and I believe I conclusively show, to the contradiction of anybody who thinks these are accidental crimes or that these are accidental drownings, as if they went into the water accidentally and drowned. I think that that is also a false conclusion. Okay, so let me ask you, uh, let me ask you a question. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Uh, when I watched the film, I wrote down dates because the first thing I was wondering was, were did the dates of when they disappeared were they connected to the satanic calendar? Right. And some of them are. Definitely. Some of them aren't. Right. So, um, uh, professionally, did you, did you put that data into something and extrapolate, like, how, what the percentage, percentages were of those that were found, like, just be, just prior to or after, uh, High Satanic Holiday? I did not go through a very scientific statistical analysis. There are spreadsheets on these crimes and listings. You know, there's a rough guesstimate of about 250 or 300 of these types of murders. But I did go through, and there definitely is an occult aspect to some of these crimes. Now, my conclusions in the last half hour, I kind of draw... I lay out a lot of facts and evidence and then draw my conclusions. And I concluded that these types of crimes are committed by varying varying different individuals, some of which are influenced by the cult, but primarily they're influenced by their, you know, their homosexual uh, desires. That's really what I I came down to the conclusions, that these are crimes within that environment. And whether you include all the gay bars, Joey Labute, for example, the gay bars, BDSM stuff, but there, I couldn't dispel the prevalence or the inclusion of the smiley face within the long strain of these crimes. There are current cases that have smiley faces. There was one of these kids out of uh, a Boston who somebody found a, a smiley face. His name was, oh, it was Zachary Mark. So, you know, people are still finding things, and it was spray-painted in red, which is very consistent. And so then, I, you know, I talk a lot about in my, my documentary, about a half an hour, about the occult nature and meaning of the smiley face and why it would fit in with these types of, these types of crimes. It goes back to William Burroughs, a kind of uh, a homosexual revolutionary in a way. Right. <coughs> the, the writer, William yes. Burroughs? Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Interesting. I don't really include that in him, but the some of the people I talk about, uh, particular Peter Christofferson was mm-hmm. a and an admirer of Burroughs and spent right. time with Burroughs, went and visited, kind of made a, I mean, along with Kurt Cobain, mm-hmm. who met with William Burroughs and he used the smiley face in the, or like a derivation of a smiley face in the Nirvana mm-hmm. art. So, you know, there's there's something deeper there. That is an undercurrent of, of what you could call the counterculture, the acid house culture, right. which is so the counterculture and the occultism that's within that those environments. So, um, what intrigued me 
first of all, with your uh, documentary, was I didn't I didn't realize this because I didn't go and watch the video after he passed away. But David Bowie, yeah, uh, did it. Do you want to tell well, a little bit about that situation? Yeah, I mean that's another one. When he was dying, his last um, his last album was called Black Star, and that's another you know another data point for me that really made me sit up. But that Black Star video is full of occultism, and some people have referenced it to Crowley and occultism when you stare at this individual candle and one of Crowley's rituals, but. The real music starts as the camera focuses in on the depiction of a astronaut in a spacesuit that has a smiley face uh, pin that's on his shirt, on the upper left part of the shirt, just like the comedian has it in Alan Moore's thing. So I do believe that's an occult reference, and it shows Bowie's deeper knowledge. And I think even the Black Star album, it shows how profound in understanding David Bowie was about the occult tradition, because the Black Star references this notion uh, that goes back, actually, it's a famous book that, I can't remember the title of it, but, you know, basically, if you read it, you go insane, but it references the Black Star. There's also a poem, too. So yeah. I think that he had a promo. And the end of that video, I believe, depicts um, the major three religions up on being crucified on a cross, with some kind of beast tormenting them. So you see uh, the Muslim religion, Christian, and Judaism depicted in the, the dress they're wearing. So there's definitely a, a very sacrilegious uh, aspect to that video. Wow. Um, and he he was dressed like an astronaut, and he was the man who fell to Earth. Right. I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. So I believe right. that in that video, he is Major Tom. He's depicting himself. Mm -hmm as Major Thomas, like one of these themes of his art was, you know, hello, Major Thomas, astronaut. And there's all kinds of aspects of a skeleton going into the moon. When he's singing in the, in the thing, he's in a kind of an attic that's shaped like a pyramid. So mm. there's pyramidal symbolism. And so I believe, and there's like black and white unions of these things going together. Oh. Very cold, hard oh. to for the meaning, the staircases and all that stuff in the background, candle. But Let I me, can I stop you for yeah. one moment? Black and white in my personal occult background and study, black and white together uh, hold or balance the energy of water. Interesting. Yes. Well, that's another thing you're bringing up, and we can get into the cult, occult aspects of these crimes as well. I mean, I show in my documentary, you know, people being tortured in water. And I've showed you some video, personally, you and I together, of people being yeah. sacrificed in water. And that's actually a theme of some of these, I mean, these like water is like the, the, the way to the spirit world. And I've heard that drowning is another form of sacrifice. You know, you can drown people. Mm -hmm. They used to drown people in, like, old Aztec rituals and stuff like that. So uh, mm -hmm. there's definitely a potential element of these people being ritually drowned. Right. Uh, and an another thing that I did find in my research is that I tried – it's very difficult to research that smiley face as far as, uh, you know, it's almost one of those underground – 
uh, underground symbols that you almost have to know what you know uh, underground that hasn't been published, which has always been a has always been the rumor with Crowley in the circles that I traveled in was that Crowley never put all the information in his book, but true adepts uh, knew, um, adept magicians knew and were able to find and decode what it was he was talking about. So Alan Moore uh, doesn't surprise me with the smiley face thing. So I did do a little digging around just because, you know, that's what I do. And I did find one place that said that the smiling face is a symbol that is uh, between the earth and the heavens. It's in the ether. And the ether being, of course, the fifth element. Right. So that's enough, that's really interesting too. So if you're using black and white and then the the smiley face, so you're you're holding the element of water and you're, you know, also in the you know, in the ether where the fifth element is where creativity, you know, where you manifest that's where manifestation takes place, is in the ether. So both of those are extremely uh, interesting. So, so, so somebody can be ahead. sacrificed in, and that's being manifested in the, the fifth element, right? Yes. Yeah. And I'm not sure why that would be, except that, you know, magic, Crowley, Crowleyan magic, well, all magic, really, but but it's all antichrist, you know. It's it, and and people, you know, Crowley was very anything that was, you know, he he deplored Jesus Christ. He, you know, abhorred uh, Jesus Christ. I mean, he was raised in a in a um, Christian home, supposedly, but they. They were his parents were really mean to him. I think, if I remember right, they beat him and and that well, sort of thing. I don't thing. know if they beat him, but they ran a very strict, rigid household. The father okay. was a pamphleteer for the okay. exclusive brethren, which was a subset of the Plymouth brethren, and they sent him to exclusive brethren schools, where then he got beat up and he called okay. them to hell. So he definitely okay. that aspect of his life he rebelled against. Okay. So in the, you know, wanting to be everything anti-Christ, but yet still striving to become as God, which is the original lie from Genesis that the serpent told Eve, eat this and you shall become like gods. So that's the goal of the magicians. Um, And yet, you know, doing everything against Christ or or against God, um, they like to... So this drowning thing, maybe this water thing, you know, God promised after Noah's flood that he would never destroy the earth again with a flood. So are they trying to manifest flooding? I mean, it, you know, it's hard to tell. But um, I think, I think Dory, your questions are good. And I think in some arcane manual, in some old witch ritual, whether it's <laughs> Gerald Gardner or Alexander's, or something, there's a ritual that involves drowning. And once right. somebody finds that, break the key. It'll be the key that unlocks unlocks 
many of the Somali face killing cases and the West Memphis Three case. Why yeah. those kids were drowned? Right, drowned. And I've showed you some of these Alexandrian rituals that are online about bounding, binding, mm-hmm. magical cords, magical knots, mm-hmm. and then they throw it in water for whatever to disperse the spirit in water. I don't have any idea, but mm-hmm. ritual out there, you know, once somebody finds that, it'll 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 show to people who are not in the cult what is going on. Right. Uh, so I noticed also that many of the killings that you uh, ex- go through in your documentary, many of the bodies are found face up. They're yeah. found not. Now go ahead and talk about that a little bit. Well, there are definitely a few cases where the bodies are found in a position that are not consistent with drowning. Typically, a drowning person. He's struggling in water and is upright and their arms are out so that when they pass away, they're in a kind of face-down position. Well, Chris Jenkins, for example, was found with his arms crossed. There was another body, a guy out of Wisconsin who was in ice. There was also the earlier case, McNeil, I believe, was face up in water. So, you know, these are one of many where they're not, they're found in, in ways that are not consistent with being drowned. So... That also contradicts the notion that they are accidental drownings, or some of them at least. Right. So, I think it was Ethan Capper, who was he was out of Wisconsin, who was found ice, like he had one arm up. There was mm-hmm. another case out of uh, out of Michigan where they found him, uh, the guy half out of water. He was one mm-hmm. of the early case studies in drowning forensics cases, um, the name of which I can't. So do you think they're posing them? Maybe maybe some, you know. I, I think that the primary purpose of putting people back in water is to confuse authorities that these are not murders. That's really it. It's a covering case. So these people are not disappeared, right? Right. And, uh, police are, are easily writing them off. So it's just a way of covering up um, things. The guy's name was Todd Guy. He was found in a river with his head and shoulders above, and they think that they came close. But Top Guy was another one where they found the uh, the investigators, Gannon and Gilbertson, found a smiley face on his gravestone. Wow. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. So that's just another strange, mocking, you know, thing about that fits in to the notion that the world is a big joke. You can do what you want, right? Just like the comedian. Right. And it goes back to Crowley. Crowley had those same ideas conceptualized in a different thing. You know, the universe is a big joke. You can mm-hmm. do it. So um, yep. I do think that that's some of this. And that kind of goes into this underground occult stuff where these guys are learning these secret doctrines that are not, you know, and there's, I think, probably sold to them as extra special. But they're not, um, they're not, the public doesn't know. And I do believe, like you said, Crowley was keeping things out of rituals. I think there are probably records within the OTO files that Crowley was the head of that the public has never seen and yep. is not supposed to see. You know, there exactly. were the magical rituals of the OTO were released. Um, you know, the 11th ritual of the OTO is some kind of anal sex type thing. You know, there's probably rituals in there nobody ever is supposed to see or introduct initiatory things you're supposed to do that the public never sees. Exactly. And you really need to know someone that knows what the rituals are 
to go from one level to another. Uh, right, and to get the apex, it's always awful things, you know? And awful. And in cults, you're always going, moving towards human sacrifice. That's its end, you know? Yep. Anywhere. It's going, so you go cult ritual, human blood, animals. Mm-hmm. You. Yep. Uh, William? Yes, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> You got so quiet after you were done talking, I, I wasn't I know, sure. I don't know how to add to that, you know? Uh, right. To be quiet. Right. So, Sometimes yeah, it pauses in a good spot. Let that sink in. Well, um, that's the interesting thing about the West Memphis Three. The guys who were, who were following what was going on in West Memphis before the three boys died on May 5th, 1993, were saying that there were animal sacrifices taking place. They were finding the bodies of animals. And there was weird graffiti, and people were talking about groups being meeting out in the woods. There was all kinds of these rumors. People were being seen going in and out of that same park where the boys were found. So there was something metastasizing there from all the court records. And you can look into all these police statements if you want to get really into the West Memphis Three documents. There was one guy by the name of, uh, oh, he left like an audio statement to the police, and it's just incredible. And it verifies everything Jesse Muskelly said. They were out in the woods. They were at Stonehenge. They were sacrificing and actually eating animals, you know. There was all yep. kinds of ritual stuff. And they said the guys who were investigating at that time said, it's eventually it's going to come to human sacrifice, and that's when right. boys were killed. Because it just got more and more savage. Right, right. And that's a, you know, demonic energy it, it is attracted to a couple of different things, and well, you know, several different things. None of them are good, good things. Um, so, the autopsies. How many of the cases of these drowning victims were autopsies actually done? Well, well I would assume that most of these cases there was a. Uh, topical autopsy done, whether that none of these autopsies have been made public. Now, it's interesting in two cases, the McNeil case, the autopsy was not made public or given to the family 10 years after their son was found in the water treatment facility down from Manhattan in in uh, in the southern part of the Hudson Bay. When the family got it, they got information that they didn't have before. They had evidence in there that he had been tortured that he'd been hit in the head with a hammer or some kind of hard object, and that he had been blowtorched on the upper part of his body. And that was Cyril Weck, the renowned forensic pathologist, was the one who read that, who saw that and said, this guy was tortured before he went in the water. So McNeil is a perfect example of the autopsy showing information. Another example is Chris Jenkins out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and his mom, Jan Jenkins. They didn't get the autopsy till later, when they got the autopsy photos, they found that their son had hair in his hand that they weren't told about when his body was found. So there was evidence of a struggle, of something going on, as if somebody was holding his head underwater and he had his hand behind his head grabbing at somebody. So there's, that was another one where the autopsy revealed a lot of stuff. Now, when I was really researching these cases before the, the well, before the documentary came out, I've been in contact with some of the families of the victims, and they asked me for advice. I said, get an autopsy. Make sure you get a second autopsy done. So 
some of these cases, they'll be familiar offsides. Now, I don't, you know, I, I don't have, I'm not access or privy to this, but I think a lot of those autopsies, there will be information for an investigator on the list of my list of victims. And I believe every one of the people in my documentary are victims of murder. In those, in those autopsies, I suspect they'll find information that varies from the public statement of accidental drowning. Now, it's interesting, too, about the Jenkins case is that the police said it was an accidental drowning. And after they got the autopsy and after the mom got involved, the new chief of police of Minneapolis, Minnesota, changed the ruling of accidental drowning to murder. So he actually had a public, um, <coughs> excuse me, like a public statement, where, uh, like a publicity, like a televised statement saying he was sorry. And Jan Jenkins was sitting right next to him. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, so that was uh, an interesting case regarding the autopsy. Mm. That is interesting because what I had been, oh, I don't want to say hoping to he to hear in your documentary, I, so I'm not going to say hoping, what I thought or that maybe would be brought out through doing autopsies was how many, or is this something that investigators are holding back because it's an unsolved case, but how many of these young men are, were sexually assaulted? Right. Well, that's a great question. You know, I think that uh, there's a lot of information that isn't public, and I think, um, I think that there's a lot of things that these could be. There's a very interesting series of cases that happened outside of Melbourne, England, um, that fits into kind of the smiley face killing. And it was known as the family cases. And young men were disappearing. They were being found all over the place, their dead bodies. And they traced it back to a group. One, only one guy went to jail, but they were abducting men, putting them into dungeons, tor sexually torturing them, torturing them. And it almost fits like what I think a lot of these people are doing. So, you know, I do believe, um, and you and I, we had talked about, I told you about that case of Skip Chasen out here in um, Los Angeles where just this year, within the last few months, I think, he had had one of his uh, submissive persons died in his dungeon. And, you know, he never lost his job or anything. But this guy travels around and goes to all these torture, you know, conventions. Uh -huh. Right. So, and oh. he has a high-profile position somewhere, doesn't he? Yeah, I believe he was a senior vice president at either Fox or Warner Brothers. <laughs> he was inking deals with A-list celebrities. You know, that's what that was his job. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of travel, a lot of moving around, a lot of networking within yep. the community. So I think that, that uh, that's an interesting person. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. And um, the, well, Minneapolis interesting place you know there's hmm, there's there's a club in particular that that caters to the bdsm uh culture community um and uh and i, I might have said it backwards um but anyway uh, like that in every city and if you look at some of the cases yes. uh there was like a guy by the name of Arvind Sharma who accidentally walked into a place that his brother said he walked into a place he shouldn't have been, a uh -huh. club. 
uh, Joey Labute, the same owner of the bar he was in, owned a gay bar across the street. Um, there's another one, a uh, guy by the name of Nas Muhammad, who's from Perth, Australia, who was hanging out in kind of a, a cult BDSM, BDSM underworld. He was kind of investigating his, his sexuality as kind of a guy who thought he was gay. And mm-hmm. he ended up in a river, you know. So those are all cases right. that I in the documentary so there there for me in some of these cases there's a clear tie to that kind of uh that kind of underground and i include it as you know my potential or my the perpetrators that are people who i do believe are doing these type of crimes i included a guy who was in that environment you know he was in even uh lanfear who i included in my documentary and peter christopherson or were involved or had an interest in that kind of that kind of behavior right now let's give a profile of the victims though because the victims for the most part they don't they don't fit that at all so right so well that's talk about the victims i believe the victims all fit the same profile they're almost as like only one outlier but they're okay. all healthy they're all good looking they're all younger and I believe they fit a gay ideal. So that's kind of one of the aspects of these crimes that nobody really keys into. That the like one one investigator, one guy I know talked about the body mass index on these guys is super low. Like nobody's even pudgy. They're right. like super skinny. So um I do believe that that's why they're in that victim pool is is the way they they look, that they're targeted by, for their looks. And you know it's it shouldn't be a surprise. Some women get targeted for their looks, whatever. These serial killers who are heterosexual have a favored whatever, you know, right. Bundy or whatever. So these are these are the ideal. And uh, <clears throat> that's why I believe that they all pretty much look the same. There was one, yeah. It's And that's the tragedy of it is these young men aren't necessarily gay, but that's what I believe they're targeted for. And I actually have some people who've talked about... Um, <clears throat> being accosted, not accosted, but being picked up on strong by people in bars who've come up to them, asked them questions, what's your, you know, what's your name, what are you doing? And they got freaked out. Like they thought that maybe somebody was really trying to find out information. And one of the interesting aspects of these cases is none of the victims are really associated with anybody with any political, cultural, or financial clout. You know, they're almost all middle class or upper middle class maybe. Right. But there's, not, there's nobody like in Silence of the Lambs where the daughter of the senator gets abducted. There's right. nobody like that. So it, to me, shows, if you draw that back, you, it shows that somebody's going through a questioning process at some point, you know? Wasn't the, excuse me, wasn't the daughter of the senator in Silence of the Lambs, though, wasn't she chosen as a victim not because of any political affiliation, but because she was a size 14? Right. Yes. Right. Right. Had, that Buffalo Bill had his preferred victim, right? Exactly. He had the same victim. But I think in, in that fictional tale, um, that's kind of what, what really brought the involvement of mm-hmm. everybody is that they had an important victim who had been abducted, right? So right. Went so who's so ever choosing these healthy, good-looking, fit, intelligent, um, young men, predominantly white, 
uh, like all American yep. Midwestern boys next door. Yep. None of them they're being chosen maybe because they're not high profile people. They're not connected to money, wealth, and power. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I think that that's definitely true. If you look at all the the, the victims. Yeah, so, uh, like, I think that, you know, I think that some of these cases could be solved if people at the bar were investigated and asked to see who was talking to this guy during the night. You know what I mean? The victim. Who was talking to Joey Labute? Other than right. who did he run into? We know he was texting. Who did Joey Labute see or run into? And... Why was he talking? Was he involved in talking with a lot of people? A lot, and that's an interesting aspect too, is that Joey Labute, another guy by the name of Dakota James, and some of these other victims are all on gay dating apps. So they're right. chatting, and that's another winnowing thing. They may be on these gay dating apps talking about who they are, what their you know lifestyle mm-hmm. is, and they're not rich, so they don't talk about you know I drove my Maserati to Palm, mm-hmm. whatever you know. So people know that they're not people of means. It's their victim's rule, right? Somebody's, right. Really, somebody's really thinking about it. Right. Uh, so um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of young men go out with their buddies one night. They go to a bar. They're not, they're not into uh, aberrant sexual behavior. They're not into the occult themselves, the victims. They go into a bar, uh, somebody, because it seems like a lot of these cases, the ones that have been autopsied and toxicology came back, have GHB. Right. Right. So so this is like basically the date rate drug, drug, fentanyl. And, uh, you know, I think that that that's what the... Gilbertson and Gannon on the the autopsies that they obtained, and they did a very scientific, exhaustive look at each one of those cases. There was an overabundance of GHB, which is endogenous; it's already in the human body, but in larger amounts, people black out, they become suggestible. So you know, there's probably that's part of the selection process. This is the person, and then I'm going to drug them, and then I'm going to take them, I'm going to take off with them. And there's other stories within. <clears throat> I think I included in the documentary, there are other stories within case studies and forensic drownings where these people are being, like the young men are being followed. They're being followed in a van. They're being followed in a truck. You know, so there's clearly people who could have been victims who evaded their abductors, you know. Right. And I talk about one case. It was a case out of New York City. I actually include the uh, a guy by the name of Urena where you can see cars following him. There's literally a car going down a wrong way on a one-way street following this overly drunk kid, Anthony Urena. And actually, the case of McNeil, the reports that Gannon had, said that when he was leaving the bar throwing up, when he stopped to throw up, a car would stop. And when he started walking again, the car would pick up speed. So he was being tailed as well. <clears throat> so That was bizarre. That was the one where, on camera, the car actually turns around and drives the wrong way down a one-way is that right? So, yes, and so there are all these little pieces of data that I think that police are, you know, police missed. Like, they're not looking into it. Once they figure out or believe it's an accidental drowning, 
The case is not investigated. Urena was on the east side of Upper Manhattan, and his body was found across the Hudson, across. The, so it would be on the east side, or oh, it would be on the west side of the Hudson River in Hoboken. So how did a super drunk guy disappear for a while and then be found in three feet of water, you know, miles, 20 miles away from where he was at? Right. And that Hoboken area is a hot spot. There's all kinds of missing people. So, you know, you just, it's just a crazy story that there are this many young men disappearing and being found in water this way. Nobody really thinks it's a pattern. There's been other stories. There actually was a, uh, a, a bunch of researchers tried to discredit the notion of a smiley face a kill, uh, killing. They did a re- research brief, and I believe you can find it online. Uh, I'm going to get the title of it right now, but okay. they, did a, they did a research brief, but I don't think they did. They did. It's the Center for Homicide Research, Drowning okay. Smiley Face Murder Theory. And you have all these names and all these people looking into it saying, you know, this is fake. When was it drafted? Um, 2010. <clears throat> and they, 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 they key into the ubiquity of the smiley face killing, but what they fail to understand is that a lot of the occult uses symbols with altered multiple meanings, you know? So they right. don't, in the dual words have two meanings, so a smiley face can mean something to one person. It's the same thing about a beehive or anything else, you know? These symbols, a beehive, oh, it's a cute beehive. Look at how busy it is. Well, in... The Masons, the beehive, is to show that inside of the Mason center, the outside doesn't know what's going on inside, right? So it has this other interpretation. Well, the same thing with the smiley face killing. So they fail to understand that. So I would, I would encourage anybody who wants to see how a group of people can get it wrong to read Center for Homicide Research, Drowning the Smiley Face Murders Theory. And just watch all the mistakes because they, they, um, they try to discount, they, they do take out things, but they flat out said in point six, there's no evidence of victim trauma. They're totally wrong. There right. is evidence of victim trauma. There's no yeah. evidence. And the, the public, what they have of victim trauma, homicidal drowning is extremely rare. Sure it is. But who says these guys are being drowned in the place that they're found? They're being dumped. Interesting point. On the story of Dakota James, he was missing for almost, for some people it's keyed into the number 40 days, you know, 40 right. days. That's because there are a few who literally were missing for 40 days. And Dakota James was one of them. And well, there goes uh, that Noah and water and anti-God again. Right. So, right. So there may be these really anti-Christian elements like Crowleyan level Christ hating in these cases. But um, he was found in a place that had been checked the day before. And I include that in my documentary. Mm-hmm. I showed the police saying, oh, yeah, we just checked that island this weekend. He was found on a Monday morning means he, he was put in the water probably Sunday night. And I have information that said that he was in, his body was not decomposed for 40 days. So this whole thing for Center for Homicide Research is laughable. It is a joke because they don't explain away why some of these bodies are not found in places that have been previously searched. So many, if not most of these bodies, including Chris Jenkins, all these people are in places found that have already been searched. Okay, so another question then. A couple of questions, actually. Uh, what are, how many of the victims have water in their lungs? Well, that's have, a question, too. That's not a public information, you know? 
Mm. Not public information, but even if I would surmise, I believe that all of these victims are killed or murdered somewhere be elsewhere their bodies are found, whether they are ritually drowned or whether they are suffocated or something, right. are done systematically in a way to in a way to show or to not you know the investigator or anybody see it to make them think that it would be an accident so right have their head cut off or something like that they don't show massive amounts of bruising or something but they do okay so they would ritually drown them in a bathtub or whatever a cauldron or who knows what maybe even a stream they would ritually drown them. That would be the method of killing in the event that when the autopsy was done, there would be water in the lungs, even though they're dumped. And did I hear you say in the documentary that, you know, some of them have been missing for a really long time and it's thought that some of them were kept in maybe a freezer? Yes, that was Nathan Capper. Some other ones, you know, that they've been thought out. So the perpetrators wow. are doing things to confuse, you know, the police, I believe. Like, they're right. sophisticated. They're, I mean, I believe that... I mean, I, like, I, I surmise... Well, I don't want to give away all of my documentaries. Right. I mean, right. I made some... I, it, for me, this whole event, these murders have cropped up in an odd way with the advent of the Internet and the ability of people to travel. And so I do believe, like, look at the... Dakota, I mean, the, uh, what was his name? Joey Labute case. When Joey Labute disappeared, it was the Arnold Classic in Columbus, Ohio. So there was a meeting of like people who were into body lifting. Were in it. I think it's the biggest body lifting convention in the country. Interesting. All these people come into town. The bars are full of these body lifters, you know, and right. so it goes disappeared. And I've actually talked with the guys from True Crime Profile, I mean, not True Crime Profile, uh, True Crime Garage, some podcast about the joy of the view because they follow the case because they live in Columbus, Ohio. So they interviewed me about that. And so I'm on the True Crime, True Crime Garage, even though okay. we talked about the West Memphis 3 case pretty severely. They claimed I was uh, involved in promoting hearsay <laughs> and disinformation when all I did was People think you were involved? <laughs> oh, I don't have any idea. Some people get crazy ideas. They also are spreading disinformation, but there's actually a lot of podcasts out there that think the West Memphis Three were unjustly found guilty. I mean, it's astonishing. These are crime investigators, you know, so you think they oh, yeah. cases. I read your book, you know, I and um, so uh, right now I would encourage people uh, if you haven't heard about this and you really want to know what's going on with, well, several things. Uh, if you want to know what's, what the deal is with Aleister Crowley, because maybe you haven't heard of him, but uh, William has written two books, if you want to talk about both of them. I've written three books. I've written probably... Well, two about Crowley and one about the West Memphis Three. Right. Which right. involves a lot of Crowley. That's how I got through. <clears throat> so it may not be primary, you know, reading about Crowley, but, but still. Uh, Damien Eccles himself, after he got released in 2011, said, I was prosecuted, this is his own word, 
I was prosecuted for my love of the knowledge of Aleister Crowley, period. Wow. That is his own admission. So if he ever goes back in court, they're going to come at him with all of his statements since he's been released. Now, you know, I don't know what could happen in the future for him, but, you know, he, uh, he should be very careful. He doesn't go back in court because he's made so many admissions that a jury just listen to that. They go, okay, then who's Aleister Crowley? So, you know, and you can bring up all the child sacrifice and Libra 66, right. that's in theory and practice, the world's tragedy, which the world's tragedy, by the way, is Jesus Christ. And the replacement for Christ is Crowley. It's going to oh. replace it. <clears throat> the intro to the world's tragedy actually talks about Crowley's um, childhood that he hated. And his mom would always repeat about, he called it cold boil of Jesus. Because she was always talking about Jesus Christ. And then the intro to the actual narrative of the world's tragedy was nobody really reads. And no Crowley devotee ever says exists. The intro to world's tragedy is child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Right. So your, your three books, uh, one, the Alistair Crowley and the, I'm sorry, the, I, I've got it written down with this other two. That's all right. The first one is Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, yeah. 9-11, and the New World Order, which yeah. I tried to show my general thesis is that part of the 9-11 event was influenced by the ideology of Alistair Crowley. My second was Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis 3 case, which I show that Devil Worship, Alistair Crowley, the occult, witchcraft, were suffused through the events preceding May 5th, 1993, and the murder of three young eight-year-old boys. And then my most recent book is Children of the Beast, Aleister Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity, which I show Aleister Crowley's cultural, political, and intellectual influence upon the 20th century. Then I also have another book, which is an easy read. It's called Aleister Crowley, A Visual Study. It's a popular thing where I just kind of describe a lot of the pictures associated with Aleister Crowley. It's uh, only an e-book. Okay. Don't you have another documentary to besides? I do actually have three documentaries. The first okay. one that I put out was the one Smiley Face Killers, but I also had two old ones that I made that I'm kind of re-editing. One mm-hmm. is a Hollywood, and the other one is a uh, actually available on Amazon. If you want to watch it, and you can buy it. It's uh, a visual take, you know, visual explication of the same book, Prophet of Evil, Alistair Crowley, 9-11, so the same information, just a visual depiction. Okay. I, those are eight, so they're very old. Right. I watched Occult Hollywood because I think I had you know, interviewed you the first time, probably in 2011. And when did you do Occult Hollywood? 2010. 2010. Okay, so that's why I went and watched that one. And again... Very interesting, very fascinating. You do excellent investigative work. You connect dots together really well. Uh, so I would encourage uh, everybody that's listening to check out these uh, works by William Ramsey because, uh, boy, it'll, it'll get you looking at things. You know, I was Googling all sorts of things uh, because, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, there were a lot of things I picked up on, too, watching the documentary, although not 100% of any, you know, almost anything except for the profile of the victims, which you said, you know, they're, 
they're chosen like a like a heterosexual serial killer, you know, if they've got grandma issues, they're going to pick, you know, somebody that's 70 and, you know, whatever. Um, but that whoever is killing these young men is, is targeting young and, and, and not just any young man, but handsome and fit and good students. They're all good students and, all yeah, that the colleges, the colleges are you know um, hunting grounds. So Boston, the college right. grounds in Minneapolis, Minnesota, La Crosse, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. those places. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's a it's a very serious issue. I talked to an ex FBI agent, D'Souza, and he mm -hmm. said that the a component of these cases is that the authorities do not want to admit that there's a problem because it can affect so much of the economy. The college mm -hmm. parents don't want to send their kids there. Um, so, I, you know, it's, I think, what was it, uh, Derek Gilbert, when I interviewed him about these, he said it was the, like the Jaws, you know, Amityville. There's no shark, you know. Right. So <clears throat> uh, I do think that that's a component. And he said that they're, you know, uh, D'Souza's point is these young men are being sacrificed to their dark, to dark gods. And there are political people out there involved that there are, you know. And so I think that his positions were, you know, they're, they're hard for me to discount. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, even Rochester, Minnesota, there was a body found in a body of water in Rochester, Minnesota, which I found really interesting because I'm actually, well, I'm not very far from Minneapolis and I'm not very far from Rochester or La Crosse. Um, so uh, all the cases were really intriguing to me because locally on the news I had heard of some of them. Um, and so just, you know, the the connection too with what's going on in the UK is really interesting because well, what do you think? Okay, so what do you think is going on there? I mean, what's your theory on is it killers? Go ahead and expand on that. Well, my conclusion in the documentary, I lay it out very clearly that it's mm -hmm. it's associated with the internet, and I believe that people with the same and, you know, I talked about Stephen Port in the documentary, a guy who was GHBing people, but his way that he would get rid of bodies was to leave them in church and fake, like, suicide notes and all the stuff that they OD'd. And the police actually believed him. And it was later found out that he had been a serial killer. And mm -hmm. using GHB, he was trolling for men on all types of online gay dating apps, and using different names and uh, wearing a wig. So, you know, I believe that he is a kind of a, a good symbol or a good idea of your potential murders. And, you know, they don't know who else he's killed, to be honest with you. There's an right. I think that has finished. I have to look it up. But they had they, there's a lot of people who got reprimanded for dealing with the Stephen Port case because, they let him slip through their fingers and continue killing. And actually, the Stephen Port case was fascinating. And one of the fascinating aspects of these cases, and the Stephen Port case in particular, is that it was the family of one of the victims who got on the police and got the surveillance CCTV video of their loved one 
and they notice an extra man, and they ask the police, who's that? Who's that extra guy? And the police didn't do it, but the family did. They said, who's that extra guy? And they found out it was Stephen Port, and they wanted to know why they were with their loved one when he wasn't supposed to be with anybody else. And that's what broke the case. So I do think, like in the case of Jan Jenkins and these other family members, their involvement in, in not believing, and you talked to, I mean, you, I included a lot of these testimonies in the documentary where the family members say, he didn't die accidentally, he was murdered. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're Scott Baker, Radle, all these parents, you know, he didn't fall into the water. They all know, a lot of those mm-hmm. parents intuitively know that something's wrong. They don't understand what this whole phenomenon is and how their loved one was involved in this phenomenon. And I think I explained that in the documentary, but they, I don't if they really understood what is happening because it's all secret and the police are being misled. Right. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, hunt. Uh, they're being hunted. Hunt Hunting is a theme uh, among Luciferians, Satanists, uh, hunting is a is a game that they like to play. Even I've heard the movie Hostel is more oh more true to a, a what really goes on than than. But somebody makes a movie about it and it and it becomes a, a Hollywood thing. But it's based off of like a, you know a real thing. So like being hunted is you know is a real real thing. Didn't everybody have like a dog tattoo or something that they, they were in this club? Um, huh. Yeah. No, I haven't seen that movie. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I would have to watch it again. But yeah, all the people that are, are after these, um, you know, killing these these um, kids that stay in the hostels, they all end up having like the same tattoo. It's like of a hunting dog or something. Anyway, and it's now I, I've heard that just the last year that that hostel is is more true than you would ever want to do what you're what you could you know even want to think about and I do know that hunting is a theme among these types of people you know bohemian grovers satanists etc etc um they they're into that kind of thing um the dark web I hear a lot about the dark web I've never been to the dark web. I know we talked uh, amongst ourselves, and you haven't been to the dark web. How much of a role do you think the dark web is playing in these types of killings? I believe it's significant. I believe that that's where this MO is shared, somewhere on the Internet in one of these, you know, BDSM, whether it's FetLife or one of these other sites that's on the dark web. It's happening now in some of these other really gnarly pedophile cases. There was one just recently in Germany where they were on the dark web. They were selling some. There was huge news in Germany August 2nd, August 7th. But she was putting her child on the Internet in the dark web. Her name was uh, see, Christian. Le- oh, no. Yeah. They, 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 this is the story. Baron Taha and Christian Lace, a German unemployed couple, were found guilty of abusing the child and having prostituted him between May 2015 and 2017 via the Darknet, the part of the Internet not referenced by search engines. So they were prostituting their, their kid. There was also another case out of um, the Philippines that was so vile 
it's I can't even repeat it, but it was uh, a Australian man who would film rape of children and film them being murdered. Like it was just horrific off the charts. And he was doing it on the dark web. And people would pay him money before he committed these crimes. It was unspeakable. It was huge news in the Philippines and Australia. But wow. was yeah, it was another example of this dark web. So there may be something really super dark <laughs> about what happens after these men are deducted, like unspeakable things before they're found. Mm-hmm. Why are they being kept in ways that I don't even want to talk about? You know. So I do believe right. dark web is a component to many of these crimes. Right. And uh, so <laughs> I'm certainly not looking for any kind of instructions here, but how does, like, how do you even, like, do you have to start hanging out in clubs like this and start talking and and asking around to find somebody who knows how to access the dark web and all this and that? Or That's a fascinating question, and it brings up a movie that I watched while I was researching these cases. It was called Cruising. And it featured Al Pacino, and it was directed by the same director of uh, The Exorcist. His name was William Friedkin. And it was filmed, I believe, in the 70s. And actually, the community that they were filming, it was really hardcore uh, BDS and gay stuff. They actually frustrated Friedkin and tried to shut down the filming in New York. And it was really... uh, an interesting thing is they didn't want this stuff published, and there was all kinds of depictions of freaking a very graphic behavior. And mm-hmm. the, the premise of the story is that there is a gay serial killer, and Pacino has to go undercover to find out who's doing it. And it's, it's interesting because the serial killer that's never shown, he just used his voice, but he's like a hunter. Like, he's hunting for victims. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it just and that came to mind while you were talking about that. How would somebody find these these perpetrators? You know, I I think that you would. I bet you know it's just like any other clique, whether you're in a gang or other group. You you know, I yeah. I mean, you'd have you'd have to the people would have to who are in that environment would have to be comfortable with you, right? Um, you have to know the secret handshake. <laughs> you have to know the code words and all that stuff. You know, they have their own language. They have their language for these people, and they have, you know, so you have to know, kind of like the same kind of pedophile language that they used in Pizzagate or right. email. These guys in their own, that own subcross, you know, they call their victims, you know, they have names for victims, gimp masks and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it gets really, really dark, and I... I I think that's probably one component about why these cases are such a mystery is that people aren't even familiar with that subculture, don't know its language, not what's going on, and they so they don't understand 1.01% of that population of the whole, whole world that has a predilection for these types of things. Maybe you have to have your own private server. You know what, I think that the real problem is that the nationwide police forces have chalked these events to accidental drowning. Therefore, 
the resources that the public pay, you know, puts their tax money in to have the FBI look into things, those resources are not apportioned because they're mm -hmm. already determined to be accidental drawing. And that's, you know, I, when I was researching these cases, there was a video about McNeil, and one of the investigators said this is the perfect crime. And in a lot of ways, these murderers, I believe, have been getting away with murder for two or three decades, and that's why the MO is repeated. Because nobody, nobody in the police force would get up and say, hey, let's stop. Now, Joy Labute, totally different. Dakota James, totally different. These more recent cases, people okay. are thinking these are baloney, but mm -hmm. cases, they didn't understand what was happening. And the corruption is widespread. Okay, so last weekend in Minneapolis, a Chinese billionaire, this doesn't have to do with, or maybe it does, but that, okay, so a Chinese billionaire, the guy that's behind JD, um, JD.com or something like that, he's, he's uh, taking business classes in Minneapolis. He is met with or is meeting with, has a core of investors in Silicon Valley. Uh, Google is involved. Uh, Richard Liu, L-I-U is his name, or Richard Lee, I think it's Liu. Uh, but if you Google him, that's not quite the name that will come up. Uh, he is planning on launching a business that will be a really direct competitor, heavy duty for uh, Amazon because this JD, uh, whatever it's called, I can't remember, it's not JD.com, but it's JD something. It, it competes with Alibaba also and, and Amazon would be the three largest online retailers. This Chinese billionaire is in Minneapolis last weekend and he gets arrested on sexual misconduct. Okay, well, they... <laughs> They release him. I'm sure he makes bail almost instantaneously. They release him, and his spokespeople say it was a misunderstanding. Of course, it was a it was a misunderstanding. So you see things like that. I run across stories like that in the news, and it makes me sit up and take notice because, yeah, I go, wait a minute. It's a Chinese billionaire. Um, he was arrested for sexual misconduct, but, oh, oops, it was, huh, we were wrong. Anyway, I don't know. You just have to wonder what got covered up. Who did they pay to be quiet? Right. They're saying that it was uh, alleged rape. <clears throat> so on really? NPR, they're saying it, yeah. Okay. Accusation of felony rape. Of a male or a female? That's uh, so a good question. Mm -hmm. They're putting resources into the into the investigation. He's okay. back to China, so he got out on bail already. Yes, he did, and he went back to China very quickly. They didn't seize his passport. Nope. <clears throat> so that's that's one I think to keep your eye on because when you watch your documentary and you see that you've connected all of these dots, and some of the dots are over in the UK, you go, oh, so whoever it is, or whoever they are, they have 
to be of some means to be able to travel. Right. 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 So Leo's um, net worth is supposed to be somewhere between seven and ten billion. Yes. And he was actually involved in a case, another sexual assault case in Australia in 2015 at his Sydney penthouse. Although he was not charged with any wrongdoing, a guest at the party was found guilty of sexually assaulting a young woman he had met at the party and took back to his hotel. So these guys, you know, there's a potential that they're traveling to other environs to commit crimes and then leave. You know, I wouldn't right. be surprised if this guy, Liu, is involved in felony rape in Minnesota. Where else has he been, you know? And is he really studying or is that just a cover, you know? For right. States are. Right. And they gave some story about how, you know, Chinese businessmen like to come to Minneapolis to, to Carlson College or whatever it is for their, and I'm sorry I'm laughing. I really, it, I probably shouldn't laugh, but really, Minneapolis, um, you right, know, Minneapolis. $7 billion, why would you go to Minneapolis? When you right. go to New York or Los Angeles or something? You could go to Stanford. You could go to Harvard Business. Okay, but you're choosing to go to Minneapolis because it's this premier, you know, business school. Um, okay, I live in the state, so I'm not knocking the fact that we have really good schools here, but this is just really odd to me. And um, because he's a billionaire, and he again could go wherever he wanted to go years Why ago. You get the most prestigious, you know, degree. Why don't you go to Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard? Right. Yeah. Like that's, right. that's odd in itself. Yeah, it is odd. And years ago, years ago, oh my goodness, mid-70s, there was a book that was written called The Minnesota Connection. And it was about, well, I guess today you would call it human trafficking. Back then, it was just that Minneapolis was a hubbub for prostitution. Right. So um, David Wilkerson, the famous pastor, had a ministry there for drug addicts and prostitutes um, that's now called, uh, I think it's um, become like Teen Challenge uh, for, for alcoholics and drug addicts. But back Back in the the early '80s, even there was still a, a ministry for you know getting these these women, these prostitutes who had been trafficked to Minnesota off the streets and into you know rehabilitation where their lives could be made over. And David Wilkerson, uh, it was very famous. He's he's passed on now. Very famous Christian pastor. Uh, that was, I think, oh my gosh, I should have looked a little bit closer. I didn't know that this was going to lead there, but it, I think he was behind like the cross, the book, The Cross and the Switchblade and, and that kind of thing. And I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. I think it was Wilkerson. Anyway, so, but because I live in Minnesota, I remember that book, The Minnesota Connection. And, and I remember um, 
seeing it somewhere but wasn't allowed to go near it because I was young in the in the mid 70s and you know my mom didn't want me to see it and you know it wasn't until a few years later that I found a the Selco library and you could borrow any book you wanted to they didn't check your ID and I was able to get my hands on it when I was about 12 or whatever and it was really shocking. So I'm going to have to look that one up again because uh, I think there's still something going on in Minneapolis. It was surprising how many of these cases were, were uh, going on um, from, from there as well. I mean, I think the sad truth is that human trafficking <clears throat> is, I think, much easier in this more modern world. People can communicate and travel a lot easier. So yeah. I do believe that this trafficking is serious and you know it's super to investigate that i mean it's super dangerous uh, mm -hmm. so yeah dangerous so you don't hear a lot about it other than no. right and it's you know actually more and more people that have been trafficked or you know have come out of satanic ritual abuse and that sort of thing are beginning to speak out um people like um sarah ruth ashcraft and fiona barnett uh are you know, starting to you know, really speak more about these things. And years ago, when I was, oh my goodness, my first podcasting co-host gig was with uh, um, the Omega Hour, and he had this pastor on, I can't remember his his whole name, his name was Doug something. He had these women on that were satanically, ritually abused and um, involved in rituals where they um, supposedly had human hybrid uh, babies and many of them you know spoke out and got together and I know one of them now uh, of these women is is really struggling to I mean she's beginning to tell her story and it was really horrific and so I think with the advent of social media it is coming to light more and that's a good thing but then by the same token the dark web has taken over to become what the regular web can't be anymore don't you think yeah, I would say there's probably all kinds of stuff. I mean, if you look at, what, Silk Road, where they were mm -hmm. doing all the trading, mm -hmm. and they're supposedly murder for hire, mm -hmm. you know, there's all kinds of dark dark stuff. I mean, that guy, what was his name? He, I think he went by the Dread Pirate Roberts from uh, Princess Bride. That was his tag. But mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> he, you know, there was a lot of, lot of malfeasance going on in the world underground just on that one site. Right. Hey Dory, uh, I, I got to cut it short. I got. Yep. I can't. I got to run off to do something. Really, in fifteen that's, minutes. Apologize. That's fine. That I was just gonna say. Let you know, we're at an hour and a half, and I was just gonna say we should probably go ahead and wrap it up. So, final thoughts. Uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. Good luck with the future of Doors of Deception, and you can see the movie on the Smiley Face Killers at Vimeo. Uh, just look up Smiley Face, or you can go to William Ramsey on Vimeo. And the title, again, is The Smiley Face Killers, Who is Abducting, Torturing, and Murdering Young Men in the U.S. and the U.K. Perfect. Thank you very much, William. I really appreciate your time, and I'm sure I'll talk to you again. Have a good night. You as well. Take care. God Thank bless you. you. All right. God bless you, too.